Today we're going to complete our study of the second missionary journey and then hopefully complete also the third missionary journey. The second missionary journey is found in Acts 15, verse 36, to chapter 18, verse 22. It begins at Antioch and it ends at Antioch. Uh, the second missionary journey, the second missionary journey well, it takes, uh, covers about three years as far as time is concerned. And Paul's companions are listed on the second missionary journey. He begins with Silas, he picks up Timothy at Lystra, and then he picks up Dr. Luke at Troas. That's the second missionary journey. Now, the focus of the second missionary journey is primarily the country of what we call today Greece, this country right here. Paul left on his second missionary journey. Paul left the city of Antioch. He went back and revisited the churches which he had established on the first missionary journey. Then uh, he attempted to go north. The Spirit forbade him. He attempted to go east. And the Spirit forbade him as we saw the week before last. Then he came over to Troas. But he didn't preach there. There he's perplexed, where should I now go? In searching for the will of God, one night God gave to him a vision. In that vision, he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And as Luke says, assuredly gathering that God had called U.S., us. And there Luke joins Paul at the city of Troas. We then sailed for Greece. When Paul got over there in the first city that he preached, he found out that the man of Macedonia was really a what? A woman. <laughs> first convert, a woman. So Paul goes over here, and he stops first at Philippi. We saw that last time. In fact, we ended at Philippi last time. And you remember there are three dramatic conversions at Philippi. Paul had more success at Philippi, humanly speaking, than any other city. First of all, there was the conversion of that little girl that was being used by her employees as a soothsayer. The conversion of that little girl. Well, Paul came up against the power economic of vested economic interests. Then, secondly, there was a conversion of that seller of purple dye. What was her name? Lydia. And there we find the, what I consider to be the greatest verse in the Bible on soul winning. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart that she attended to. She believed the things spoken by Paul. We spoke on that last time. Then who was the third conversion in Philippi? Philippian jailer. Three dramatic conversions. May I suggest that you study that sometime? Uh, once again, three dramatic conversions at Philippi. So when uh, uh, they found out that no charge could really be lodged successfully against Paul, the leaders of the city came to Paul and said, will you slip out the back door and leave? And Paul said, no, not at all. You put us here publicly in prison so everybody could see us. Now we're going to ask you to wait till noon tomorrow where everybody standing around can see us. And then you're going to release us at that time so that not we will be vindicated, but the gospel will be vindicated. See, one of the purposes in writing the book of Acts was to demonstrate that Christianity was not an illegal religion. When Paul, or when Luke wrote the book of Acts, 
the Neronian persecutions were about to begin. Uh, Nero ruled for about, uh, what is it, 14, 16 years. And you know, he was a sadist. And uh, near the end of his reign, he began severely to persecute Christians, to torch them in the city of Rome at night, to tie them up, pour oil on them, and torch them. And he went probably somewhat insane. And uh, Christians are beginning, going soon, going to be charged with crimes against the state. So Luke writes the book of Acts, one reason, to demonstrate that in all of these experiences, nobody could ever level a charge against Christians violating the laws of the state and make it stick. Never could. Whether it was in Philippi or in Ephesus, <clears throat> in, that, in that riot that took place in Ephesus or wherever it might be. Always found not guilty whenever brought before the state courts. And the courts of the Roman government were, were comparatively just. And Paul had resource, resource uh, to those uh, Roman courts. And Christianity was never found guilty. So Paul was released from Philippi. Now, therefore, we pick up at that point Point number seven, Thessalonica. Point number seven, Thessalonica. First, we went through Syria and Cilicia, picked up Timothy and delivered the decrees, went through Phrygia and Galatia, spent a short time at Troas, then crossed the Aegean Sea and came to Philippi. There had three dramatic conversions. Now, as you have it on the outline, point number seven, Thessalonica, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Let's read it. Acts chapter 17, 1 to 9. Thessalonica was a great city. It was the commercial center and virtually the capital of uh, this uh, province. And it had about 200,000 people as far as population was concerned. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where it was the synagogue of the Jews. Now, Paul follows his normal modus operandi. He goes to the synagogue. And here's a good, uh, in brief, a good uh, picture of Paul's message in the synagogue. Look at verse 2 and 3. And Paul, as his manner was, he followed the same method. He always headed for the synagogue, and he always followed the same message. Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and for three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, not three Sundays, by the way. The Sabbath is Saturday. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with the Jews out of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, opening and alleging that one, Christ must, the Messiah, the Messiah must, needs to suffer. The Messiah must suffer. Second, the Messiah must rise again from the dead. He proved both of those from the Old Testament. The Messiah must suffer. Secondly, the Messiah must rise from the dead. And then here's his third point. See, he's homiletically correct, three points. And here's his third point, that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is what? The Messiah. So he had three points, and this is Paul's procedure in the synagogue. Here, in, epitomized in a few words, is Paul's method of preaching in synagogue. Uh, what did Paul use when he preached the synagogues? To what did he appeal? To what did Paul appeal when he preached? 
Pardon? Well, he appealed to the Jews, obviously, and the God-fearers, the Gentiles. But what did he use as his seat of authority? Old Testament. Paul appealed to the Old Testament. Now, when he gets on Mars Hill, he doesn't appeal to the Old Testament. So what does he appeal when he gets on Mars Hill, where he's preaching to pagans? Nature, conscience, doesn't appeal to the Old Testament. Because these pagans didn't know anything about the Old Testament. They never heard of the Old Testament. So it would have been useless at that point to appeal to the Old Testament. He appeals externally to nature and internally to conscience. And he did so when every preached to pagans. But when he went to synagogue, he preached, he appealed to the Old Testament, and he had three points, basically. Number one, the Messiah must suffer. Even the disciples had a hard time with that, didn't they? When Jesus came to the disciples and said that I, the, I, the Son of Man, must go up to Jerusalem, and I must suffer many things, and I must be crucified, rise again the third day, what did Peter say? That be far from thee, Lord. What did the Lord Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me. Yeah, the disciples had a hard time with that. So here with unbelieving Jews, an unbelieving God-fearer and Gentiles would have a hard time with it also. So Paul went to the Old Testament with which they were familiar and point one, he showed that the Messiah must suffer. What do you think he used? Isaiah 53, the Messiah must suffer. Secondly, that the Messiah must rise. What did he use? Psalm 1611 and other passages. The Messiah must rise. And third, what's the third point? This Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all these conditions, and he is the what? Messiah. That's his message. And you have a good illustration of it in this ministry in Thessalonica. All right, verse 4, the consequences. Verse 4, and some of them believe and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, that's God-fearers, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Now, this happens again and again in the city. When Paul goes in the synagogue, three groups are going to, especially in, in what we call uh, northern Greece, Macedonia. Three groups respond to Paul. What are those three groups? Verse 4, three groups respond to Paul. Some of them, who would that be? That's a Jew. Then what's the second one? Devout Greeks, that's the God-fearers. That's these Gentiles who are attracted to the high monotheism and high ethical standards of Judaism. And in every synagogue, there were these Gentile God-fearers. And out of them, Paul found his richest harvest. And then who are the third group? Chief women. Macedonia was noted for having a very liberal policy toward women. Uh, the ERA wouldn't have had any difficulty, you see, in uh, northern Greece and Macedonia. The women often had leadership positions. And so uh, in the synagogue, when Paul preached in, in the Macedonian cities, he had the conversion of some Jews, some God-fearers, and several leading women. But, verse 5, the Jews which believed not, that is the unbelieving Jews, out of that city, moved with envy, took unto them. I always like this phrase here. 
certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Now that's descriptive, isn't it? Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Gathered a company, set all the city in an uproar, sought to the house of Jason, sought to bring them out to the people. When they found them not, they drew Jason out, and certain brethren, the rulers of the city, saying, These men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here. And Jason is received, and these men do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, treason, treason, another king, one Jesus. They troubled the rulers of the city, uh, and when they heard these things, and when they had taken bond of Jason, they took bond of Jason, and that bond of Jason may have been that Paul would not be allowed to come back to Thessalonica. And if Paul came back to Thessalonica, what would happen to Jason's bond? Forfeited. So they took bond of Jason, a believer. And that bond required that Paul get out of Thessalonica. So, verse 9, they let them go. And verse 10, they sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. So we come to number 8, Paul's ministry in Berea. Acts 17, verses 10 to 14. They sent Paul to Berea. Now here's a beautiful phrase. Look at verse 11. Paul's in Berea. Where did he go in verse 10? When he came to Berea, where did he go? One to the synagogue. What, were, what was his message in the synagogue? Same message. What was it? Point one, Christ must. Second, point two, Christ must. That is the Messiah of the Old Testament must suffer. The Messiah of the Old Testament must rise. Point three, this Jesus is the Messiah. That's his message. So verse 11, these were more noble. These uh, listeners were more noble than they than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now look at the, at the response, the same group. Therefore many of them believed. Many Jews would believe. Jewish men. Secondly, a number of the honorable women, women, leading women of the city. And third, of the men, not a few, that is the Greek men, Gentiles, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica acknowledged that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came down from Thessalonica, began to persecute Paul, stirred up the people. So immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy stayed there in Berea. Now that's the ministry at Berea. Paul refers to the hounding of the Jews of his ministry in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. We're not going to turn to it. But Paul refers to the way his Jewish uh, brethren, kinsmen, hounded him from city to city. And here's an occasion. Notice verse 11. I remember reading years ago <coughs> a statement by G. Campbell Morgan. I suppose I read it 35 years ago. G. Campbell Morgan said, here's an ideal audience. Every preacher would like to have this audience on Sunday morning. Verse 11. You know why? They had both an open mind and a closed mind. They had an open mind and a closed mind. They had an open mind, verse 11, because they were ready to receive the word with all what? That's an open mind. That's an open mind. They're ready to receive the world with all readiness of mind. They had an open mind. You know, some people uh, have their minds are set in concrete. See? That's right, their minds are set in concrete. And uh, 
because they've been reared in a certain tradition and they've been reared in it, stayed in it for 30 years, uh, they're just simply unwilling to be bothered with the truth. Their minds are simply closed. It's hard to get into that mind. These people had an open mind, open to the truth. And our minds ought always to be open to the truth of God. It was one of the great old Puritan divines who said, God has yet more light to break forth from his word. God has yet more light to break forth from his word. And every generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generation. None of us has the whole truth. And every generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generation. I stand, and so do you, on the shoulders of the men in the 4th and 5th centuries who fought the battles of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. I stand on the shoulders of Anselm, who fought so vigorously for the doctrine of vicarious atonement. I stand on the shoulders of the Protestant reformers who stood for the priesthood of the believer and justification by faith alone and the authority, the final authority of the scripture, the same battle that we're facing today. I stand on the shoulders of the Puritans who also battled for these things. We stand, and I stand surely on the great leaders of the last hundred years who have given to us uh, an new light upon God's prophetic word. We all stand on the shoulders of these men. Now that's going to mean if the Lord tarries, somebody's going to stand on our shoulders see, and find more truth, but it'll be truth out of God's word. God's not writing any more Bible, but somebody's going to discover a new insight in the word of God. See. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of the men who went before us. And as the old Puritan divine said, God has yet more light to break forth from his work. And, you know, it's a rather sad thing uh, to come across a man who lives in the 20th century, but he hasn't moved one inch from the days of the Protestant reformers. Now, I hold the Protestant reformers in high regard, but I don't think they had all the truth. Uh, I don't think, especially in the area of eschatology, I don't think they had all the truth. But we have some people who take their stand with the Protestant reformers and they haven't moved one inch from that time for the last 400 years when God uses his servants to bring forth more work. We always have to test it by the plumb line of the word of God. Now that's an open line, but what else should they have? They searched the scriptures what? Yeah. You know what they did? They took their Bibles to church on Sunday morning and had their Bibles open to see that what was being said is true. Not to be skeptical of the preacher, but to check whatever was said by the plumb line of the Word of God. Now, that's a closed mind, and I like that. It never bothers me. See, never bothers me in preaching. If people, they get their head down and search. Now, if they go to sleep, uh, that doesn't bother me, but if they snore, it does. See? But I like people to study the Word of God and evaluate. See what I had to say. Is it in the light of the Word of God? 
does it measure up to the plumb line of the Word of God? They had both an open mind and a closed mind. You know there's some people who have an open mind and that's all. And so that every new doctrine that comes along blows through their mind and they pick it up. Totally open mind. We need, as Campbell Morgan said, both an open mind, give audience to what's being said, to listen carefully. We need also a closed mind to evaluate it in the light of the Word of God. All right, that's Paul's ministry in Berea. And Paul says, what's your fourth word in verse 11? Is that the fourth word? Noble. What's the third word? More noble. The Bereans are called more noble. What do we call some of our Sunday school classes? Berean Sunday school class? Do we have some churches in the city of Memphis called Berean? Yes. Berean often Baptist churches will have that term. Berean Baptist Church. And that's why. That's why. Because it goes back to this verse. All right, now we come to the next one. Point number nine. Paul at Athens. Point number nine. Paul at Athens. Paul's ministry to the pagans at Athens. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Acts 17, verses 13 to 64. Uh, 34. Acts, if you're... Bible has 64 verses in verse in chapter 17, then you better get your eyes examined. <laughs> it's verse 34. Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34. Now let's read it. Paul arrived in the city of Athens, verse 15. And they conducted Paul and brought him to Athens. And receiving a commandment to Silas and Timothy, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. That is, certain brethren came down with Paul from Thessalonica and brought him down to Athens. Uh, but Paul had left Timothy and Silas back here in Thessalonica. So when Paul got down to Athens because uh, of the trouble he was suffering from the Jews that came from Thessalonica down to Berea and chased Paul out of town, chased him out of Berea, and Paul had to leave and leave quickly, some brethren brought him down to Athens. So Paul sent these brethren back up to Thessalonica at, at, with the message to Timothy and Silas come down to me at Athens. Now it so happens that Paul ministered in Athens and then went on to Corinth and Timothy and Silas came down to Athens, found him gone. They went down to Corinth and met him at Corinth. So Paul's in Athens and he's in Athens by himself. You know what I've tried to visualize, if I studied this book once again, how would I like to go into the city of uh, uh, the city of Chicago? How would I like to go in the city of Chicago and find out that in the city of Chicago, no churches, no Bibles, no one ever heard of Jesus Christ? What would I do? Well, you know what you and I probably do? Get the next bus out of town. See? What would you think of going into a city like Corinth? 600,000 people, <clears throat> morally the cesspool of the Roman Empire, racked by paganism, idolatry, and immorality, and not one Christian in the city of Corinth in 600,000. How would you like that? That would be a tough task, wouldn't it? Where would you start? 
Where would you start? Well, where did Paul start? Synagogue. Synagogue. And then after he preached the synagogue, a while, the, the unbelieving Jews discovered that what he was saying uh, didn't fit in with what they believed. They chased him out of the synagogue. So when they chased him out, some believed. When they chased him out, he took those and met in a hole. And that was the beginning of that local church in that city. And he discipled the believers and established the local church. And then do you know what he did? He got the elders of the church to call him to a five-year ministry at that church. No. No. He moved on. He felt that the Holy Spirit who brought the church into existence, that same Holy Spirit could nurture and take care of the church. And he moved along. But he sent back Timothy and Silas and Titus to help the church. Secondly, he wrote epistles back there to deal with problems. And third, he revisited those local churches to help them with their problems. What did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew 28, verse 19? Go into all the world and make disciples. And Paul was always interested in pediatrics, in discipling believers in local churches. So Paul comes to Athens. Now let's look at verse 16. Paul waited for them. That is for Timothy and Silas at Athens. Paul's spirit was indignant, stirred in him, when he saw the, the city wholly given to idolatry. Wherever Paul went, there were pagan idols. So he disputes with the Jews and with the devout persons, that is, um, Gentiles inclined toward Judaism. And down in the marketplace, which is the center of the city, disputed with them daily that met with. Then that's with the Jews. And then verses 18 to 21, then certain of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered Paul. And some <clears throat> said, what will this babbler say? And some said he seems to be set forth a strange God because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus, which means the hill of Mars, the god of war isn't the god of Mars, is it? Well, that's the same as Areopagus, the hill of Mars. And that was both a place where they met and the name of the council. Areopagus was both the name of the council and the place where they met. So <clears throat> they uh, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, Maybe know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. So all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. So Paul stood in the middle of what? Now that's the same as the Areopagus. Stood in the hill, uh, in the midst of Mars Hill and said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious or perhaps too religious. And then we follow Paul's speech. Now, we don't have time to look at it, but Paul doesn't make any appeal to the Old Testament. He appeals to the God who created this world. Verse 24, God that made this world and all things therein. And uh, he appeals to the God of history. Verse 26, has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth. And he appeals to the, to the God who uh, sustains us, the God of providence. Verse 28, for in we, him we live and move and have our being. And certain also of our own poets have said, we are also his offspring. 
For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we are like God, then God is like us. Paul uses a form of a theistic argument here. Since we are the offspring of God, then God is like us. And since we think, God thinks. Since we can hear, God can hear. Since we can reason, God can reason. Therefore, don't think that the God whom we worship is a God made of stone or gold or silver. That's Paul's argument. It's one of the arguments that's, uh, that's part of the theistic arguments for Christianity. And it's an argument, for example, that C.S. Lewis uses in one or two of his books. Paul appeals to that argument. He didn't appeal to the Old Testament scriptures. Why? These men didn't know it. They never saw the Old Testament. So he appeals to nature. And then he speaks of the God of judgment, verse 31, because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now what was the response? Verses 32, 33, and 34. So when Paul, look at verse 32, when Paul gave the invitation, thousands of the flock forward to respond. Is that what it says? No, he didn't have much of a response, did he? Verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what's the first response? Mock, derision, unbelief, mocking. What's the second one? Procrastination. We will hear thee again of this matter. Then verse 34, certain men believed, claimed unto him and believed, among whom was Dionysius, a member of that Areopagite, uh, not Areopagite, member of the Areopagus, the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Three responses, and you have them today. What are the three responses? What did the first group do? Mock derision, made fun of. What's the second one? Not now, later on. Procrastination. But the third consequence, some of them did what? Re received, believed in Christ. So that's Paul's, Paul's ministry in Athens. Now, uh, you want, uh, Paul's been in, uh, Paul was up at Philippi. Now think with me just a minute. Paul was up at Philippi. What did they do with Paul at Philippi? Well, before yeah, they kicked him out. Before that, they threw him in where? In jail. <clears throat> then they kicked him out and asked him, don't come back to this city. So Paul went from, went from Philippi down to Berea. And after he preached at Berea, what did they do with him in Berea? Most of the men mocked. Some of them said later on we'll do something, and a few, a very few, and he only mentions two of them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul goes down, now listen to me, Paul goes down, Berea, uh, Thessalonica, put in jail, Philippi put in jail, chased out, Thessalonica, hounded out of the city, Berea, hounded out of the city, Athens, very little success, and he's all by himself. And he now goes down to Corinth. Do you want to see what the state of his soul was? Don't read it now. But read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see the state of Paul's soul at this time. He was very discouraged. You know we tend to think that Paul walked six feet above water. And they never got discouraged. 
But Paul got discouraged at times. And you want to read the discouragement that Paul underwent at this time, being rejected, thrown in jail, hounded out of the city, and very few responded in Athens. Then you read the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, now Paul comes to the next city, which is Corinth, a great city. And Paul had a great ministry here in Corinth. <clears throat> Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. Now, uh, Corinth is located on an isthmus. Greece is divided generally into two parts, Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, uh, the other term for Achaia, which is southern Greece, is... Uh, is uh, Greece. Southern Greece is called Achaia in the New Testament, or in Acts chapter 20, it's called Greece. Macedonia and Greece are named in Acts chapter 20. Macedonia is the uh, northern part of Greece, and Achaia is the southern part of Greece. The key cities in Macedonia were Thessalonica, where Philippi, and Thessalonica. Paul's been to those two key cities. The key city in, in, in Achaia, southern Greece, was not Athens. The key city was the city of Corinth. Corinth was right on the Isthmus. We read in Herodotus of the Peloponnesian Wars. The Peloponnese was this uh, land right here was connected by an isthmus, almost an island, connected by an isthmus to southern Greece. And that's called the Peloponnese, and that's the place of the Peloponnesian Wars. Now, Corinth was located right on the isthmus, a very strategic position, right on the isthmus. On the southern part of that isthmus that connected this Peloponnese with the southern part of Achaia, although this is also Achaia. And it had two seaports. It had a seaport on the east and a seaport on the west. So the traffic coming from Rome wouldn't have to go all the way down here, which was rather treacherous, but it could go right into here to this seaport. And then they had what we kind of call wooden runners. They'd put the cargo, the ships, they'd put the ships on these wooden runners, run them through the city, and out to the other seaport on the east side. And all the traffic that came up from the east went to Corinth. So Corinth was a great seaport city. Now, have you ever lived in a seaport? I've lived in one and been connected with another. And you know what they're like. Seaport city is always a rough city. High gambling, high prostitution, high immorality. Well, that was Corinth. Corinth, along with its two seaports, was a city of over 600 million people. That is, it was a city largest, about the same size as uh, Memphis. It was a very strategic city because it was the leading, one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, commercial city in the Roman Empire because all the trade moving west went through Corinth normally. And all the trade moving east went through Corinth. It was a great seaport city. Secondly, it was a multinational city. It was a melting pot of nations as well as religious. Religiously, Corinth was also a, 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 sea, a, was a melting pot. 
because you had the Greco-Roman emperor religion, and you had all the religions of the Near East uh, meet in the city of Corinth. Morally, Corinth was the lowest and vilest city in the Roman Empire. If they wanted to speak of a man, it was a popular term. It was found in uh, Greco-Roman literature. If they wanted to speak of a degenerate man, they would call him a Corinthian. If a man was exceedingly immoral, he was called a Corinthian. Whatever on the Greek theater, a man or a woman from Corinth was portrayed. The man was always portrayed as an alcoholic, a drunkard, and the woman was portrayed as a prostitute. And um, in the city of Corinth, 1,000 young girls, 16, 17 years of age, were uh, sold into religious prostitution every year in the city of Corinth. See, prostitution in those days was always connected with the temples, with religion. They had both male and female prostitutes. And part of the temples were given over to prostitution. You didn't go down to a red light district. You went to the church, the temple. In those days, the pagan temple. To engage in prostitution. 1,000 young virgins were committed to religious prostitution every year in the city of Corinth. It was a debased, immoral city. You want a description of the city? You read Romans 1, 18 to 32. When Paul wrote to Roman, the Romans and, and gave that description of <clears throat> ungodliness and immorality is given to us in Romans 1, 18 32, the cardinal sin of which was homosexuality. Paul was in Rome on the third missionary journey when he wrote that. And all Paul had to do was to walk the cities of Corinth. Walk the cities of Corinth and without any trouble whatsoever, he could sit down and write Romans 1, 18 to 32. It was a debased, degraded, immoral city. Do you know the city, do you know the church with which Paul had more problems that deal with marriage and divorce and immorality than any other city? Do you know what church it was? Corinth. Do you know what epistle deals with all those kind of problems? We studied it three years ago, didn't we? That's the that's the first epistle to Corinth, uh, first epistle to Corinthians. It was a church that was racked and racked and racked with problems. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> that none, no unrighteous, no adulterers, no immorality, uh, those of immorality, no men that abuse themselves with mankind, homosexuality shall enter the kingdom of God. Then he adds about five words. And such were some of you. The people were members of the church of Corinth were formerly homosexual and adulterers and debased and degenerate. And God had changed them and saved them and transformed their lives. But I want to tell you something. Corinth was a tough city. Man had to have a double call to go to the city of Corinth. And here was Paul, walked in. I, I've lived in a seaport city, Galveston, and it's tough to live down in a seaport city. It's tough. 
Paul went to a seaport city that was tough, multinational, degraded morally. And how many other Christians did he find around that city of 600,000? Not one, see? How would you like to go? Little, small, probably. Paul was small, not very good looking, not too tough, wiry, but probably not too tough, went into the city and preached for 18 months. And when he went into the city, he didn't go in ebullient with letters of recommendation. He went into the city alone. And he went into the city discouraged. He'd been defeated, apparently defeated, up there in Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, and Athens. Here he comes into the city. See, defeated, discouraged, apparently defeated, discouraged, into the city of 600,000 people. Now, you know what I'd have been praying? Lord, send me back to Antioch, where it's nice and comfortable. But not Paul, not Paul. Paul was tough. All right, let's look at this. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto him. And we know this from secular history, and this is one of the ways we can date the book of Acts, because we know the date of this edict. And he commanded all Jews, he expelled all Jews, did Claudius, the emperor, from the city of Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla, who were already believers, left Rome and came over to Corinth. And I said there was nobody there. There were two. How did Paul find these two, Priscilla and Aquila? How did he find them? Would he run an ad in the newspaper? <laughs> no. I just under the providence of God. He was of the same trade, and that brought him together. That brought them together. But uh, in the providence of God, they came together. Verse 3, he stayed with them. That's where he made his home for a while. Stayed with them. Because we're the same craft, that is, he made tents. And he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Paul was reared down in Cilicia, and Cilicia shipped out skins, and it was a great tent-making trade. And the Jews had a proverb. The proverb went something like this, that any father who does not teach his son a trade, teaches him to be a thief. The Jews, unlike our modern civilization, which has gone increasingly white-collar, the Jews believe in the dignity of manual labor. Whatever a man may be called to do, even if he's called to be a preacher, like Paul, they felt that the father ought to teach his son a manual trade. And Paul's father taught him to be a tent maker. Paul was well educated. He would have had, if he wanted to, some PhDs behind his name. But he still knew how to make tents. When he went into a city as Thessalonica, as in Corinth, he made tents and preached. So nobody could say, you're in this for money. He carried his own way. He made his own way. And Paul often refers to that and refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul went in there and made tents and worked all day at tent making. And then in the evening, he preached the gospel. So he wouldn't be of charge to the, Thess uh, to the Corinthians. So verse 4, or he and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. 
Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Thessalonica, Macedonia, <clears throat> Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. <coughs> now, when it says that Paul was, it says in your translation that Paul was, uh, in verse 5, Paul was pressed in the spirit, doesn't it? Somebody got a later translation. Uh, engrossed in the spirit? No, it's a, somebody got something other than the King James? What have you got here? All right. Uh, all right, it says here, Paul began devoting himself instead of pressing the spirit. Uh, the word is not spirit, it's the word W-O-R-D. And rather than being pressed in the spirit, it says that Paul was, Paul was devoting himself or engrossed himself or devoted himself completely to the word. Now, what does that mean? Well, what if you look up here? Now, I can tell it quick, more quickly. What happened was this. That Paul made tents during the day and preached at night. He supported himself by manual labor. He supported himself. He didn't want to be dependent on the Corinthians so they could say that you're preaching the gospel for money. And Paul goes over that very carefully in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you do well, especially if you're a deacon or an elder in the church, you do well to read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 9. But when Timothy and Silas came down from northern Greece, from Macedonia, and they had been at Thessalonica, and they'd been in Philippi, they brought something with them. You know what that something was? They brought an offering from the church at Philippi to support Paul in the ministry so that now Paul could devote himself completely to the word. That's what that verse means. It says in the King James, he was pressed in the spirit. That's an unfortunate translation. doesn't mean he was pressed in the spirit. It means he now could devote himself completely to the word. Now, if you want the reference of that, read Philippians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 and 15, and you'll read the record of that. So when <clears throat> Paul had worked, worked hard with his hands, preached the gospel for quite some time, then Silas and Timothy came down from northern Greece, and with, when they came down, they brought with them some financial support from the church at Philippi. They gave it to Paul so that Paul now could devote himself completely to the Word. And that's what you have in the newer translations, isn't it? Engrossed in the Word or devote himself more completely to the Word because of that support. And you know what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4? Paul says, you, you, you Philippians, you were the only church that communicated with me in this matter of giving and receiving. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to have coffee and donuts. We're not going to go to the dining hall. That's being repainted. We're going to go down to this room right below us. You know what that room is called? Koinonia. And that word koinonia is translated fellowship or communication. And that's the word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 4. No church communicated with me but you alone. And you did it two or three times. You did it when I was down there in Corinth, 
and he did it while I was in prison here in Rome. And they sustained Paul in his missionary journeys, you know. They, they supported him. So Paul was able to give himself. Now look at verse 6. And when they opposed themselves, blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, I am clean. From henceforth I am going to the Gentiles. So Paul left and moved the believers over to the house of justice, one that worshipped God, whose house was connected with the synagogue that was next door. Now, Justice may have not have been a believer, but he was open-minded, so he invited Paul to come in and use his home. Paul did. He didn't stay there at night. He stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 8, Crispin, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, were baptized. What is the order? Look at the and that's very important. The end of verse 8. What's that order? They heard the word of God, they believed the word of God, and then they were what? That's the normal order. Then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by, here's an encouraging vision. Don't be afraid, Paul, but speak and hold not thy peace. Two encouragements. One, I am with thee, therefore no man shall send on thee to hurt thee. Second, I have much people in this city. That is, there are many unsaved people who are my people, that is, my elect, and whom I'm going to save. I have much people in this city who are going to be saved. So God gave to Paul two encouragements, and he needed them. So how long did Paul stay there in the city of Corinth? Verse 11. That'd be how many months? All right, now, right between verse 11 and 12, something goes. Can anybody tell me what goes between verse 11 and 12? You got about quarter of an inch space there between verse 11 and 12 look real carefully what do you see you can barely see it I can barely see it in my Bible can you see it what it is is first and second Thessalonians between verse 11 and 12 Paul wrote at this point first and second Thessalonians First and second Thessalonians go right in here. Timothy and Silas had come back. When Timothy and Silas came back to Paul at Corinth, they gave to Paul a report of the condition of the church of Thessalonica. They love you, Paul. They're standing together in unity, uh, and they're standing for the Lord. But here are some problems. What are they? Well, there's a rumor out that you're in it for money in that city. Number two, there's some sexual immorality in the church at Thessalonica. Number three, they have some questions about the Lord's return, the resurrection. And number four, there seems to be a spirit of anarchy in the church at Thessalonica. So Paul sat down and wrote 1 Thessalonians and dealt with those problems. That's 1 Thessalonians. Timothy took it up. And then Timothy came back and made a second report. And what was that second report? Well, there were two things. You listening? First, somebody had circulated a letter around in the church of Thessalonica that believers were already in the day of the Lord, already in the tribulation. Already. And they had forged Paul's name to that letter. Second thing is, 
There were some believers who said, well, now, since the Lord's coming is imminent and come at any time, then what they did out in Tucson, and I was out in Tucson when it happened, they gave up all their jobs and said, we're not going to work any longer. We're just going to wait for the Lord's return. So Paul sat down and wrote Second Thessalonians. Paul said, number one, you're not in the day of the Lord because the church is not going to go through the tribulation. See, Paul was a pre-tribulation. He's not going to go through the tribulation. And secondly, if any man does not work, let him not eat. Paul dealt with those problems in that second Thessalonians. Now, the rest of the verses, 12 to 17, 12 to 17, when Galileo was the debt, the proconsul, as was Pilate, Galilee was proconsul of southern Greece, Achaia. The Jews made insurrections with one accord against Paul, brought him up to Galileo. And Galileo said, verse 14, it's a matter of, of uh, civil crime, then I would gauge him, but it's not. It's not. It's a matter of your law. So I'm not going to judge him this. And he drove them away from the Greek, uh, from, the, from the, his court. And the Greeks were somewhat anti-Semitic, took this occasion to take the Jews and to beat them, and especially Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue. So, verse 18, after this, Paul tarried a good while and took his leave. Now, let's read this. We'll, we can finish this second missionary journey right here. Verse 18 to 23. Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence to Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. That is, Paul had taken the vow of a Nazarite, and that vow, 30-day vow, was over now. The vow said, don't cut your hair. So Paul had taken that. Don't cut your hair for 30 days, see, which indicates that Paul kept pretty short hair, doesn't it? 30 days. So after 30 days, that vow was over. Paul could cut his hair. And, uh, <clears throat> he, and he came to Ephesus. And he left for Sil and Aquila there at Ephesus. And we're going to find them there next time when we come. Third missionary journey. Having shorn his head in century, and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But Paul entered in the synagogue at Ephesus and reasoned with the Jews. One they desired Paul to stay longer with him. He said, I can. I can. But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep the feast that comes in Jerusalem. But I will do what? He does on the next missionary journey. And he stays in Ephesus three years. He fulfills his promise. God returned. So he sailed from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea and had gone up to Jerusalem and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch, the home base, the home church, and made a report. And after he had spent some time there, he left on the third missionary journey. All right, will you look here? We finished the second missionary journey. What has Paul done on the second missionary journey? What has Paul done on the second missionary journey? Can you tell me? First of all, he evangelized virgin territory. One of Paul's principles was to go into virgin territory, not to preach where other men had laid a foundation, to go where nobody else had gone. What was that place that he, where he focused his attention on the second missionary journey? Well, Corinth, but larger than that, what place? All of Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, 
And Paul evangelized the strategic cities of Greece. Not here. Now, on the third missionary journey, he's going to evangelize the strategic cities here. And the seven churches that we read in the book of Revelation are the churches that Paul helped to found on his third missionary journey. But God called him beyond that to go over here on the second. And he evangelized Europe. This is the beginning of the European campaign. He leaves Asia, goes to Europe. And Paul evangelizes the strategic cities in Greece. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Athens. Number two, not only did Paul evangelize these strategic cities, what else did Paul do on that second missionary journey? As a consequence to evangelism, what else did he do? Well, later on he revisits. But while he was there, after he evangelized, what did he establish? Local churches. Local churches. Paul didn't believe in church tramps. Paul established local churches. They met at home, but he established local churches, ordained elders, and established the pattern of service, meeting on Sunday and having the breaking of bread service, the communion, and having the ministry of the Word of God. Paul established local churches with elders and with deacons and with a pattern of worship and responsibility of the church members to those whom God had appointed to places of office in the local church. Paul believed at the end of missionary work was always the establishment of a local church. So the second thing he did, Paul established local churches in the strategic cities. <clears throat> and you know, some of them are still going today. The church at Salonica still exists today. Paul's work was permanent. And what's the third thing Paul did? He wrote two epistles. What are those two epistles? First and second Thessalonians on the second missionary journey. Three years. That's, you know, some men would be happy to do that in a lifetime, wouldn't they? Listen, <clears throat> I would be glad to do that in a lifetime. If I could say at the end of my life that I evangelized the strategic cities of Greece, established local churches, and wrote two letters like this, I would think that that would be worthy of my whole life. Paul did it in three years. Three years. And that's due, of course, to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but it was due to the fact that Paul committed himself to the single life and no other obligation. One great occupation, one great calling occupied his mind and soul, and he committed himself to that day and night. And as Jesus said, the foxes have holes, and the animals have dens, but the Son of Man has not. Yeah, and most of us think that Jesus was saying that with a sob, that he was complaining. He wasn't complaining. No, he said that joyfully. Paul, what Jesus is saying, I don't have any mortgages to pay out on a hole. I don't have any family. I don't have anything holding me back. No, then, no, I'm free to move. And so was Paul. He cut everything, burned all the bridges, so he could go into virgin territory and preach the gospel. Now, God doesn't call 
all of us that way. But I'm sure he's calling a few of us, some of us to that, more than we see. And the only denomination that pays any sort of lip service to that kind of marital status is the Roman Catholic Church. This doctrine of celibacy. Though it may be wrong in some respects, it's certainly not a higher form of spirituality. Yet there's something to be said, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for the single life to give itself completely to the ministry of the gospel. Because Paul did that, had one great passion, and drove himself relentlessly, and was not a clock watcher. And was committed to the Holy Spirit. Paul accomplished in three years what most of us would be glad to accomplish, I would, in a lifetime. Now let's pray. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and goodness. Thank thee for this man, Paul. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, Be ye followers of me, as I am a follower of Christ. And our Father, there is a great deal that we could emulate in the life of this apostle. His wholehearted commitment to Christ. His single eye of which Jesus spoke. His single eye, the glory of God, the salvation of souls. Paul said, I become all things to all men that by all means I may win some. Our Father, we pray that thou give to us something of the spirit of this man Paul, so that our lives may be used wherever thou dost place us, whatever occupation, our lives may be used for the honor and glory of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one...